This season of On the Contrary by IDR is supported by the John D and Catherine T MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Your differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. Here's your host, Smarnita Shetty. Large businesses and the environment have traditionally been seen to be at loggerheads with one another. A country and its people can either create more jobs and contribute to GDP or they can save the environment and protect our natural ecosystems. But is this framing accurate? The actions of large companies and businesses have a sizable impact on climate in terms of the resources they consume, the waste they generate, and the processes they adopt. On the other hand, the effects of the climate crisis are felt most strongly by those who work in the informal sector, such as agriculture, construction, and micro-businesses, where their work and incomes are affected by extreme and uncertain climate patterns. In India particularly, a climate crisis is coinciding with our growing unemployment situation, with young people and women disproportionately affected. Given this, how can the discourse change from pitting one against the other and instead look at the intersections of business and climate change? Is there a different way of thinking about livelihoods versus just jobs? This episode explores the idea and practice of sustainable livelihoods and businesses in the context of climate change. And to help us unpack this, we have Sabina Devan and Harish Hande. Harish is the co-founder of Selco, a social enterprise that has pioneered the delivery of decentralized solar energy across rural India. He set up the company in 1995 after having observed the benefits of solar energy in rural areas in other countries. In 2011, Harish was conferred the Raman Magsasay Award in recognition for his work in sustainable energy. Sabina is the founder and executive director of the Just Jobs Network, which she began with John Podesta in 2013. She works closely with governments, businesses, multilaterals, and grassroots organizations, providing critical information about the labor market in order to generate more and better employment, especially for women, youth, and marginalized groups. Let's start with one of the first things. This constant conversation that you hear in the mainstream narrative that usually pits jobs against the environment. It's industry versus climate action. It's one versus the other. So how relevant is this kind of thinking today? And how are businesses thinking about jobs and employment in a world that has more contract labor, more gig workers, and decreasing formal jobs? More people, in a sense, opting for entrepreneurship. Sabina, can I start with you? Let me start by just laying out a slightly broader picture. We are at the moment witnessing, experiencing several major transformations that are completely upending traditional employment models and changing the way that you and I live and work. And climate change is one, and it's one of the biggest, but we're also witnessing things like technology, the pandemic, urbanization, migration of people, all of these different trends, demographic change, all of these different trends are completely changing labor markets, restructuring labor markets. And what this is doing is that it's happening, this change is happening at a pace and scale that is faster than the ability of institutions, data systems to keep up. 
And this is causing a lot of insecurity and a lot of precarity in labor markets as well. So these single dichotomies of industry versus climate, like uh, informal, formal, these kinds of dichotomies are kind of unhelpful at the moment because this moment in time is really a confluence of factors that are changing the way that we live and work. And the kinds of precarity or insecurity that we're witnessing in labor market ranges from, in India, from an increase in unemployment, even pre-COVID unemployment was at 6.1%, youth unemployment was three times that at 17.8%, declining labor force participation rates in general, but certainly for women, fewer than one in five women are in the labor market, stubbornly high unemployment, a large share of our workforce is self-employed. So all of these changes, we're moving toward a, a labor market that is much, much more insecure. Even regular wage workers don't always have written contracts, paid leave, or social security. So this idea about labor and contracting, this has to be contextualized into this broader landscape of massive sea change that's happening. And unless we can actually figure out how to create institutions, adopt regulations, build policies that protect workers, harness their productive potential, then I think we're going to face a lot of economic insecurity and turmoil, which will also be bad for businesses. Thanks, Sabina. Harish, do you want to speak a little bit about how relevant this kind of thinking is and what you're seeing play out in terms of how the labor market scenario is changing? See, I mean, if you look at the last 10, 15, 20 years, the environmental jargon or environmental wordings and the climate change was mostly owned by the so-called activists. And so what has happened in the mid-80s and the 90s, where environmental activism, way it was pitched between both sides of the equation was it is activism versus industry, right? And the way the euphoria went off that uh, when you have a hard left, you also start to have a hard right. And so a lot of the industry leaders were also like, okay, boss, we need to make livelihoods, we need to make money. And so don't talk about environmental movement because that's not the issue right now. And on the other side, the hard reality that this is kind of a wave that is coming and you're not able to see it, the droughts in Europe, for example, right? Or the flooding in parts of India and Pakistan and elsewhere, or what has happened in Latin America, per se, it's hitting. But what has still not happened is that it's not directly still hitting the boardrooms. Yes, a little bit of a shakeup, but I think the urgency, because the age group in which a lot of the boardrooms work in are still at a different era and are not apt or not qualified enough to look at how the new solutions should come up. The climate change is at a much faster pace and the way it has hit us in the last two years people will have to be more serious than what they are right now. So, how do you change some of this? Because like you said, right, the impact is felt most by communities on the ground. Unless they're served by people in the boardrooms, how do you protect the livelihoods of people? Because that's also getting impacted due to climate change, right? My fear is what I saw in COVID. The first casualty was the uncontracted labors and etc., whatever you define it. And then you push them back into so-called, or go back to where you came from. So you had this migration back to the rural areas. Happened in Africa, happened in Latin America, happened in India. The issue is 
how can centralized business actually make sense at all? I mean, on one hand, America is suffering from centralized businesses pushing their manufacturing to China. And that is why a lot of the local entrepreneurship is gone in the other than the IT sector. We need to look at much more decentralized job creation where we are looking at uh, 25 kilometer radius, 50 kilometer radius, 100 kilometer radius, localization of consumption, localization of production, leading to localization of livelihoods creation. We should have that as the model rather than too big to fail, but actually the failure is taken by the poor and not by the boardrooms. Say for example, when the COVID hit, a lot of the centralized supply chains of food and horticulture had collapsed the transportation system, the trucks and everything. So a lot of the poor who are doing vegetables or different crops in different parts of the country could not sell, in a sense, because there was no storage per se, right? Otherwise, what used to happen is middlemen used to pick up, take it to the central part, sell it per se, right? Now, one of the best examples is how do you come up with decentralized small cold storage systems, solar powered. Previously, people used to think large cold storage, small cold storage systems, but where whether it's flowers or the vegetables or any local cropping, potatoes, tomatoes, all are kept in a decentralized way and are sold within a radius of 25, 50, 100 kilometers. So the margins are also a little higher because people are able to procure better prices because of the storage facilities. And the second beauty is that there is a decision-making time is that I can do better processing like a ketchup or anything else. Previously, I had to just sell tomatoes. I used to capture least. So decentralized cold storages actually led to larger opportunities for the poor to get more value for the production. And that's the, some of the examples I would say which should transform the way the new businesses and livelihoods will happen in the country. Sabina, Harish has highlighted the importance of localization and decentralization when it comes to businesses. Have you been seeing different ways of thinking about livelihoods? Yeah, so uh, Smarita, let me comment on a few things that were just brought up. I mean, first of all, I think that it's quite, uh, in some ways, naive of us to think that companies will ever think about anything other than their bottom line, right? The essence of a private sector company is profit creation for its shareholders. And therefore, the idea that we can expect companies to actually have a collective conscience for society is, I think, a stretch. That's not to say that I don't believe we should strive for that or that we shouldn't advocate for companies to have an ethical and moral compass. But I think the expectation that they do is naive. So I just wanted to be clear about that. What that brings me to is taking a step back and saying, you know, our economic models and our certainly policy and regulatory frameworks in India are skewed toward, as Harish said, toward not really focusing on the bottom of the pyramid where development needs to happen most. But I would fault the fact that our economic systems are skewed and our regulations are not adequate and our policies are weak rather than blaming companies alone and saying that they don't have a conscience. That's the point that I'm trying to get at. Now, when I talk about regulations or, I mean, for one thing, we have minimum wage regulations. They don't get enforced very well. Certainly, they don't get enforced when it comes to women's employment. We've now moved from 
inspections to kind of voluntary reporting on part of companies, these kinds of trends that are toward uh, that actually exacerbate the existing asymmetries of power. Now, over time, as fiscal resources with governments have become weaker, there's an increasing reliance on the private sector to fund different aspects of development. There's a consolidation happening, as Harish said, you know, the too big to fail. There's a consolidation happening with big companies that swallow up smaller companies. We see this with the big six tech, these economic systems are more conducive to the continued asymmetries of power at the same time that we have weak regulations and policies to counter that. But the problem, in my view, is that we're not doing enough to put a stop to that or to counter that or to moderate that. And therein lies, I think, one of our major action items, rather than saying, you know, companies should be doing something else. I absolutely agree with Harish that Decentralization and localization when it comes to job creation is essential, particularly for a country as large as India. That said, I don't think we can completely undermine the importance of exports to our nation's development, to our jobs picture. I also point to other examples across the globe where participation in value chains has been a huge springboard for job creation and economic growth. Let's look at Vietnam. I purposely did not say Bangladesh, which is what everybody wants me to say, but I think the Bangladesh model is actually not the right model to follow. The Bangladesh model has been one that has capitalized on low-cost labor that hasn't led to development outcomes despite high levels of growth for several years. But if we look at a country like Vietnam that has managed to diversify its economy, institute education, institute training, institute healthcare in many ways, we in India can aspire to balance these kinds of mechanisms. We have to. Our labor market is too big and too diverse for us to completely cut out one part of the equation. We have to look at bolstering exports. We have to look at how we can claim our share in value chains. But at the same time, where the rubber meets the road for a lot of the lower socioeconomic level workforce of ours, there I do agree that localization of livelihood and decentralization of job creation strategies and skilling strategies is absolutely essential as well. If I can just probe you a little bit more, Sabina, on this. I mean, in the context of climate change, businesses have the most impact in terms of the processes they have, the waste they generate or the resources they consume, right? We can't just say because they're only primarily accountable to their shareholders, what can we ask them to do? So how do we get them to start moving down the path? Well, absolutely. I don't think we should all just sit back and throw our hands up in the air and say, let's not do anything and leave them alone. What I'm suggesting is that we can't just pin blame on them and not do anything about it. And what works with business, as we've seen, is consumer pressure, right? Now, at the end of the day, these are a multitude of individuals that one-on-one are probably very nice people with the best of intentions. But when you put them together in the form of a profit-driven corporation, then there's a different outcome until there's pressure. And these pressure points or incentives either have to come from the market and consumers, or they have to come from government in the form of regulation. Let's be clear, even the companies that do good things are doing them because People see that they're doing good things and then will be more inclined to buy their products. And also, I think we can't lump all corporations into one big basket. 
this country has hundreds of thousands of small businesses that are also part of the private sector of different sizes. So are we talking about just the very large corporations or are we talking about small and medium enterprises? And then those dynamics differ. The last thing I'll say is that there are a lot of businesses that are jumping into the adaptation mitigation game precisely because they see a market opportunity. There is a market opportunity to manufacture solar panels or to come up with different kinds of solutions that help communities and populations deal with the nefarious effects of climate change. I think it's important to see what the incentives and pressure points for business are, and that's market consumers, regulations, and a market opportunity as well for them. Harish? My point is, I'm a little concerned when, Sabina, you would say that we are naive to understand that business have to take responsibility. Business are part, no, but business are part of society in the part of the environment where they work in. Now, the question is, I work in a certain landfill. I have a geography around me of people, land, the flora and the fauna, everything around me, right? The question is, do I say that I really don't care what happens because anyhow, there's no regulations but I can extract. So my question is, are we saying that it's okay to be extractive, right? It's okay to be extractive and you cannot be extractive until the regulations come in. So I'm a little bit confused here. Then I can mine as much as I want because my end goal is profitability. I really don't care what happens to the tribals around me or anywhere else, because then what is the role of industry associations like CII? right, who are supposed to be taking the nuances of everybody. It's not only the profitability of the business per se. And the secondly, Vietnam is not a democratic country. It's very easy for Vietnam to actually do all the activists are in jail, you go into it, but we are a democratic country. So my question is, there is today, we cannot say one part of the society will not be playing a game, has to be equally responsible because climate and poverty is not only regulation government, it's everybody together. We cannot say until somebody does the regulation, I'm not going to do it. And I think that game, that's exactly why the disparities have increased. That's why only nine men have 70% of the world's wealth. And that has not worked. So Harish, I think that's a, what you're saying is a great question, but that's not what I said at all. The point that I'm making is a very nuanced point. The point that I'm making is that we can sit up and blame businesses all we want, right? I'm not the one that's saying businesses shouldn't take responsibility. It's not their responsibility. I didn't say that. What I am saying is that there's a difference between what you and I would ideally like to see and what the reality is. We would not be in the mess that we are in, in terms of resources extraction, in terms of resource depletion, in terms of the job scenario that we're in. We would not be in this kind of a situation if businesses were taking responsibility. Did I ever say that they shouldn't? No, of course they should. But the point is that they're not. And so what is the solution? The solution is not us saying, standing here saying, they should take responsibility. The solution is what I was trying to propose. The solution, it lies in market pressure, consumer pressure, regulatory pressure. That's how you'll get businesses to change. I'm 100% in agreement with you that businesses need to be doing something different. But my 
focus was on what is going to make them do something different. I agree with you on the Vietnam. That's a completely fair point in terms of Vietnam not being a democracy. That said, several democracies also jail their activists. So uh, my, my point with regards to Vietnam was much more about just the fact that they're not a one sector a model, that they're an economic model that has been able to diversify as well as make social investments at the same time, and therefore their outcomes are better. I 100% agree that the governance model of Vietnam makes it easier to make those changes and democracies are much messier. Only one point, Samina, I agree where, I mean, I think we're coming to the same point. So the only place where I little disagree is when we say the market pressure. I'm not a big fan that market pressure, moment you have market pressure, Facebook changes its name to Meta, right? So now it's a different company. So these companies, that's exactly my point. What is market pressure, right? They are selling the same bloody product with a different name. That's all it is. And regulations, yes, but also some, it is where I, where I would say start at the beginning, at the fourth grade, fifth grade, MBA students, MBA classes, bring in the concept of social sustainability. And today, social sustainability is not a good CSR you do after 60, right? It is part of the business, but unless and until we change the coursework in MBA schools, the future managers, uh, this is what management is, and part of those guys come into CEOs, and some of those guys become the regulators. We are not catching them young. Harish, can I ask you a question? If you catch like an 18, 19, 20-year-old and you ask them, do you really care about climate change and the poor? What do you think they're going to tell you? Both. Many of them will say both. Okay, so exactly. That's my point. My point is that these individuals are absolutely aware of climate change. They're absolutely aware of the social realities. But it's the corporate culture that we've established. So it's not, I think... If we go into an MBA school and start teaching social realities, we are dealing with children that, and kids and youth that have a conscience, and perhaps even more so than adults do, because they're the ones that are going to be affected by right. this. But I think it's the corporate culture that we live in, and changing that, I think, would require definitely maybe more social consciousness raising in MBA programs, but certainly also market pressures and regulatory pressures and market pressures, I do mean, I mean, we see this in the global north, that consumers will pay the extra dollar for something that is fair trade or something that is organic or not in our countries in the global south, we can't afford to do that. There's a premium. And we don't exert that kind of pressure. But we could, right, we could exert that kind of pressure on companies in terms of markets and say, you know what, I'm not going to buy this service, or I'm not going to use this That's what I mean by market pressure. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. Most of us don't like to fail. And so we try and avoid it at all costs. But failure is natural. And there can be no success without it. In fact, it teaches us invaluable lessons about what not to do and how to make things right. IDR's new podcast, Failure Files, puts stories of failure front and center, where you can listen to candid perspectives and lessons from social entrepreneurs working on some of the world's toughest problems. Listen and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. And now... 
back to the show. So we've talked about how we're seeing a bunch of different shifts that will upend labor markets and traditional employment models, whether it's the climate crisis, the pandemic, urbanization, tech, or demographic trends. And we've also had a great discussion around incentives and what the role of business should be going forward when it comes to sustainability. I'd actually like to shift gears a little bit and ask you, Harish, outside of large companies, which is what we've been talking about so far, what are the opportunities for livelihoods, especially in the context of climate change? You've done a lot of work with small and medium-sized entrepreneurs and decentralized models. So what's your take? If I break it up into four or five sectors per se, and say agriculture, and under agriculture, say the government of India has 18 value chains. If you look at the millet value chain, uh, the silk value chain, or if I go to animal husbandry, you look at the dairy value chain as well as poultry value chain. The third part is the resilient micro-businesses like the eateries, the, the barber shops, and everything else. Then you have the textile and crafts. All these are livelihoods, if you look at from a value chain perspective, and none of them have been explored from a climate resilient perspective. Less drudgery and making it gender inclusive. For example, today when you run a rice mill and it's run on diesel powered, you not only need a man, but you need a strong man to start the diesel engine. A small solar powered rice mill, switch off a button, you suddenly have women coming into the livelihood force or a blacksmith blower. And why can't it be solar powered? The switch and then it starts, the hammer mill actually works on it. Suddenly women become blacksmith blowers. So the beauty of creating livelihoods at the decentralized fashion is not only it creates livelihoods, jobs today, not tomorrow, today. It's automatically climate resilient without being taking climate resilient. It's inclusive, whether it's transgender, whether it's gender, whether it is, it's a marginalized religious community and it's bottom up and democratized in many ways. So those are huge opportunities where innovation in terms of technology has not yet happened, innovation in terms of financial models, innovation in terms of delivery models. And India can be that R&D center for the world. Sabina, do you want to respond to that? Because I also want to ask you about the new opportunities being generated. This term green jobs, right? What do green jobs look like? In the popular imagination, often we think of the impact of climate change being an upending of agricultural livelihoods and people from coastal areas having to move to already oversaturated urban labor markets, which is a huge reality. So I think the one is the just the direct impact of climate change on livelihoods. The other side of this coin, however, is the upending and disruption of livelihoods that is impending with the move from coal-based energy to renewable energy, right? And basically needing to shift people out from those working in coal sectors to other sectors. And it's not a one-for-one, no matter how many jobs the renewable energy sector creates. And and perhaps there's a lot of research that shows that they'll create a lot of jobs. And then there's the third strain is that there's the ancillary sectors, the steel production, the railways, the ancillary industries that are very much geared towards us doing business based on coal, the way that the energy is, uh, supply is structured today. And all of that will need to change. And in the process, we'll need to have the right institutions in place to be able to equip workers, protect workers, provide them with skills, provide them with healthcare, provide them with a basket of social protection and support and think about how we're going to get them into meaningful, gainful livelihoods. I think that 
rather than thinking about green jobs or what a specific green job is, I think we need to green all jobs, right? We need to shift our economic structures such that we're relying on cleaner sources of energy, more efficient sources of energy. And I think that these centers of innovation at the grassroots level that Harish is talking about is a huge potential opportunity, but there's going to be a lot of labor market pain before we can actually have greened jobs at the scale that we need to be able to absorb the huge labor market shift that's happening and going to keep happening and perhaps even accelerate. Yeah, because I think in a sense, we don't have the luxury of time, right? The climate crisis is happening right now. So both of you have actually spoken about the role of government and the role of businesses. But is there also a role for media? And what about the role of civil society? in making sure that we can think of solid livelihood opportunities in the face of the impacts of climate change. Harish? Civil society is a very fragmented in a country like ours. And especially when you look at CII, at least the industry has an association, right? The civil society is less coherent. I would take saying that the civil society has taken a much more serious role than what it is, rather than just saying that we are standing for the poor. What are you doing? Are the poor part of your problems and part of your solutions? And you are raising the most expensive money. The philanthropic money or CSR money is the most expensive money because that can make or break a potential future market or an ecosystem per se. And the program design thinking is what needs to happen in the civil society press that when you're designing programs, are you designing from a 10-year perspective or are you designing for just the funder has asked you from a 31st March perspective. I think civil society is way behind in its formulation of what needs to be done from a climate resilience. And that's where I think I see a huge gap that needs to be plugged in. So you're saying it can actually make some of these linkages that prepare people to be ready for some of these opportunities that get presented? And lower the transaction cost for future businesses to come and take over. In a sense, right? You are using the most expensive philanthropic capital. What are you trying to do is lower the transaction cost and make the systems much better using philanthropic money so that other types of private capital can come in, right? You are not lowering that transaction cost. You are moving away from one project to another. And the long-term thinking process of the civil society is absent. And that's where I think there is a, it's a relay race, right? In many ways. You know, I think it's important to note that civil society is an extremely valuable connect to the ground, often compensating for the gaps in our public and government infrastructure and policies, right? So I really think that civil society has an absolutely crucial role to play. And I think the very fact that they're not part of the private sector, that they're not profit-driven, actually gives them license to really engage with the communities in a way that has a different set of incentives, that has a different set of goals, that is often not the case with a private sector or a business, right? No matter how small the business, it's still trying to make a profit. And I think that's a really, really vital part of the equation, that civil society is invaluable. As much as I agree with Harish that the grant-based model has been warped to a place where sometimes civil society is in the business of staying in business, right? Uh, where they really should sort of create self-sufficient communities and move on. So there's a lot of things that civil society could be doing better. But I think the fundamental premise is that they are really plugging a very valuable gap that is left 
often by public services and government services, and to the fact that they're not profit-driven, better equips them to deal with some of the very deep challenges that our communities are facing that I think only civil society could address. And I also just want to add to that the idea that it's civil society, but it's also labor unions. And we started this conversation really talking about the asymmetries of power between corporations and workers. And I think the importance of labor unions also needs to be emphasized in managing the kinds of power relations that have become very skewed with suppression of worker voice, with less avenues, especially in a world where self-employment is growing, these kinds of opportunities for collectivization are becoming fewer and fewer. So it's civil society, it's labor unions, and it's very important that we continue to nurture this community, to continue to nurture their role, even if they don't always do everything perfectly the way we'd like to see. Given everything that we've talked about today, from the asymmetry of power between companies and workers, to incentives for companies to operate more sustainably, to all jobs being green jobs. What do you think we absolutely need to change today? Harish, do you want to go first? There's programs design thinking in different uh, colleges and MBAs before they go. They're all, all looked at, okay, you're going to go into business or civil society from a transactional point of view. You're not taught to design programs. You're not taught to look at all the consequences from a time perspective, from an environment perspective, from a generational perspective. Those design thought processes are completely absent. And today's world is not about mechanical engineering or electrical engineering. If you look at the United States, some of the colleges have tried to break away from the traditional thinking of engineering colleges and started to look at multi-cross-sectoral colleges, which will bring out a person as a solution provider rather than an expertise. I think if climate change has to really, I mean, the solutions have to succeed. We need a lot of implementers, programmers, thinkers. And for that, how do you set the pace? And India is in the right position to become that knowledge hub for especially the South. I'm talking about Latin America, South America, as well as Africa and Southeast Asia, be that hub of the future generation of future in the next five years solution. And that I would say education institutions should take it up at the right moment. Otherwise we'll be having the same debate five years down the line. I would just summarize, you know, in some ways, Marita, by saying, you know, we do have this biggest existential crisis of our time hanging over our heads. And do we want corporations to take responsibility? Absolutely. But we have to be able to exercise the levers that we have at our disposal to their full extent if we want corporations to do something different. And that is really relying on consumers and consumer knowledge and using the media to exert pressure and to focus on exerting market pressure as well as and certainly adopting not more or less regulation but effective regulation in order to hold corporations accountable. That's number one. Number two, I think that we cannot think of the effects of climate change or the energy transition or the idea of green jobs as an individual phenomenon that's not connected to the rest of the economy or the rest of the labor market. I think what we need is an economy, a society that focuses on the importance of livelihoods and generating livelihoods. So livelihoods become the backbone on which we build growth, not that we strive for economic growth and then hope that the jobs come. We need to have a jobs first and a work first and a really concerted strategy on how we can leverage every opportunity, small business innovation, 
big business and expanding employment, entrepreneurship, all of the above, in order to create a more job intensive economy. The last point that I'll end with is that as we undergo this massive sea change with climate change and the restructuring of labor markets and strive and run as fast as we can urgently to kind of try to build the systems and institutions that will protect workers and help with these transitions, we cannot forget about the importance of women in this entire picture and and the gender dimension. For far too long, women get left out of the story and India's female labor force participation rate has been declining and dangerously low. So I think the gender dimension of this entire transition has to be of prime importance and front and center in terms of our priorities. One thing is clear. The climate emergency is forcing us to relook our current economic models. And it is high time that we understand how this affects where we work and how we work. Decentralizing jobs and businesses and localizing livelihoods is a step in the right direction. This will ensure that the most vulnerable to climate crisis aren't left in the lurch. But we need to hold those sitting in boardrooms, those continuing with their business-as-usual approach, accountable as well. And in doing so, ensure that governments, media, markets and civil society all play their part. Thank you, Harish, and thank you, Sabina, for a great conversation and for helping our listeners understand the issue from two different vantage points. On the Contrary by IDR is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarnita Shati and me, Shreya Adhikari. Production by Made in India. If you like our show, Please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from so more people can find out about us. You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and see you next week.